You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, church, one of the hallmarks of us as a church at Mercy's Door is that we have strove, striven, strived. Yes. Since the beginning of the church, I'm a pastor, not an English major. I get to make things up as I go. And you guys have to just sit there and deal with it. We've worked hard since the beginning of Mercy's Door to institute a rhythm as we've looked at Holy Scripture, which is that we see and engage the Word of God as one entire story. Now this is true, but it's something that we... On this side of the cross, thousands of years after the last pen was put to paper of Holy Scripture, it's something that we struggle to do, to see this as one entire story. And there's, there's a, a lot of good and quite honestly logical reasons why that is. The, the Bible is made up of 66 different books. It was written by 40 plus different human authors. The span covered from the writing of probably Job, likely the first book written, all the way to the last penning of Revelation was a thousand plus years. We know of no other story, no other book that seems to take that form that covers that span of time that was written by that many different people, and yet we would look at it and see one cohesive story. And even beyond just the facts, even the the tone and the tenor, the different type of literature that is, is comprised in Holy Scripture seems vastly different from poetry to narrative to law and prophecy. We, we look at the two testaments, the old and the new, and the, the, the overall feel, the tone, the tenor. It feels different. And yet it is one book ultimately written by one God for one purpose. And when we don't engage Scripture that way, we sorely miss out. You know, one of my favorite movies is Saving Private Ryan. And if you've seen the entire movie, and I know a lot of people have seen clips of Saving Private Ryan, but if you've watched the whole thing from beginning to end, the the movie is bookended by the scene of an elderly gentleman who is approaching and then walking and standing amongst tombstones in a cemetery. And the the beginning of the movie is, is moving, as this elderly gentleman makes his way with his family behind him, his, his children and even his grandchildren, into this cemetery. And then eventually he stands before a gravestone and he becomes to be overcome with emotion. And it's a really moving scene. But it's not nearly as moving in that moment as when you see it at the end. Because in between the the beginning scene and the end scene is the full story of his life. Of all that it took for him to be standing there on that day. The the movie, if you haven't seen it, and uh, you know, if you're gonna say to me, Michael, don't ruin it for me, right? Like it's like 25 years old. Okay, if you haven't seen it by now, you're not gonna go home and and pop in a VHS and, and finally view it for the first time, okay? You should have already seen it. Right? But the movie is about one man who lost two brothers in World War II. And after they had found out that his only two brothers had been lost, a, a, a contingent of a few men are sent into Western Europe to find him and to bring him home so that his mother would not be forced to deal with the loss of all three of her sons. And over the course of the movie, a number of men give their lives for him. And then they show at the end scene him standing before the tombstones of the men that gave their lives as he is overcome with emotion. And it's in that moment that we realize just how significant of a picture that is. See, the the story of Scripture is, is, is much the same. 
We fast forward our way to the end, even to the most amazing, scandalous, shocking moment of Jesus on the cross. But I'm telling you, if you have not seen the entire story of redemption unfold from creation to that point, then you're missing some of the glory, some of the awe, some of the wonder, some of the beauty of even the Gospels. And that includes even a book like Leviticus. As we read Leviticus, we are reading a part of the grand story of redemption. And for us to skip over even this culturally strange book is to miss out on the beauty of what the Lord is doing. So let me catch you up on the story of redemption as we begin a 10-week sermon series through the book of Leviticus. And listen, if you are here, if you showed up this morning and you were like, what? I have showed up on week one of a 10-week sermon series through Leviticus? The answer is yes. Welcome. And now, unless you want to be awkward and leave in the middle of the sermon, I've got you trapped. And so I've got like 45 minutes to convince you that this is exactly what you need to hear this morning. So the story of redemption, it starts in Genesis chapter 1 in the glory and perfection of creation. In the beginning, God was. And God, in His grace and mercy, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, out of grace and mercy and love, He speaks and He brings a world into creation that is perfect, spotless, without flaw. The pinnacle of His creation is humankind. Image bears, Imago Dei, created to reflect His glory. And yet, humankind in Genesis chapter 3 rebels against their Creator. They determine that their Creator is not perfectly good. Or at least they have been fooled into believing it. They decide for themselves that they are equal to the task of being God, deciding what is good and not good. And in their rebellion, the world itself crumbles. Sin and death enters into the story. And yet, even at the very onset of the fall, our God is gracious. And He makes a promise that one day a Redeemer will come. One day a Rescuer will come and set all things right. The story speeds along as we see the impacts of the fall until one day God comes to a man named Abram. And He makes a promise to this man that out of his offspring, the entire world will be blessed. And that language would cue us in that that sounds so much like the promise made in Genesis 3 that one day the world will return to blessing, return to peace, return to flourishing. And somehow it will come through this man, Abram. But his offspring, his people, eventually make their way into slavery, into Egypt. But God, true to His promise, shows up and frees them out of bondage. He leads them through the wilderness towards a promised land, what would seem to be one day a a mini Eden, a mini picture of the world that the Lord is going to redeem. But He doesn't just promise to lead them to a land that is wonderful. He promises to be their God once again. Like the Lord walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. But there's a problem that comes The Lord promises to come, be their God, even dwell amongst them in something called the tabernacle, a tent, a gathering place, the place where the glory of the Lord will descend. And at the end of the book of Exodus, the book right before Leviticus, the Lord, as He finalizes that story, gives commands to Moses, the leader of the people of God, to build this tent where His glory, His presence will dwell In the last chapter, chapter 40, it ends this way. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect 
the tabernacle, this tent of meeting. You shall put in it the ark of the testimony. You shall screen the ark with the veil. You shall bring the table, arrange it. You shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony. You shall set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar. You shall put water in it. You shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. The Lord instructs Moses in great detail that was covered even chapters before how to set up this mini Eden. This place that might finally contain the presence of the Lord that the people of God might dwell close to Him at least again. And it says this, Moses did this according to all that the Lord commanded him, and so he did. So Moses finished setting up the tabernacle. Then we read the cloud, the Lord's glory, His physical presence, covered the tent of meeting. He came down to dwell, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Praise God, Israel must have rejoiced. Moses must have rejoiced, except for the next verse. But Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud, God's glory, settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The book of Exodus is a book that is driven forward as God continues to meet with Moses, this mediator, this, this one that, that is the, the, the holiest of all of the people of Israel that the Lord speaks to in order to, to mold the people of God into His blessed, priestly, glorious people. And yet here, the tabernacle is erected. The glory, the presence of God comes down. And Moses, the, the best of the people of God, we're told, can't come in he can't be there and so we're left with the question how can a holy God dwell amongst a sinful people how in this promise that the Lord has made to come back to us to restore all that we have broken How can He be amongst these broken, sinful, rebellious people and not consume them? What will happen if they broke the covenant, the relationship that they made, the promises that they gave to the Lord? Well, these are the questions that are answered in the book of Leviticus. This is what the book of Leviticus is for. It helps to answer how can the Lord dwell with sinful people? It contains the statutes and laws that help us to see the beautiful, gracious answer that the Lord gives us, His heart towards His people, that He actually does want to be amongst even a sinful and rebellious people. So this is what we're spending our time doing over the next ten weeks. Looking and asking, God, how can You come back How can we be with you? Do you even desire to be amongst us? And we find in Leviticus the most beautiful answer, and the answer is the Lord saying, yes, I will be your God and you will be my people. Are you ready? Let's dive into chapter 1. Verse 1, it says this, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. Same word used interchangeably here. Saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. The book of Leviticus begins with the Lord calling Moses. There's a theme here in Leviticus you need to continue to keep your eyes on, and it is that the Lord drives forward the story of redemption. It is the initiating love of God that moves the pen to the page, that moves the story from left to right. He's always the one that does this. And so, 
our eyes should always go to Him when it seems that the story stalls. When we get to the cliffhanger, when we get to the problem that we don't know how it will be overcome, we should never look towards ourselves, but always look towards Him. Because the Lord calls, the Lord moves, the Lord speaks, and when He speaks, we can trust that He moves towards the redemption that He has promised. This interaction between Moses and the Lord before the tent of meeting, it, 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 it gives us kind of a central picture that plays out in Leviticus. And it's the Lord as the, the covenantal king. Right? That covenantal means, means a relationship that is established through a, a promise. The Lord is the covenantal king and Israel is His people. And so the Lord, the King, He calls Moses, the representative of His people, towards the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, towards His his earthly palace, if you will. And here, He gives Moses instructions, commands, laws, on how the people of God can be His people. Maybe, let me say it another way. The book of Leviticus is the Lord giving a gift to His people. Now, if you've ever read the book of Leviticus, my guess is the first word that pops into your mind is not gift. At least not gift from the Lord to His people. As a matter of fact, for most of us, if we've read the book of Leviticus, it's been one of two things. Either because we've had to as a part of a reading plan, or a portion of it that we tried to as a part of a reading plan. Right? This is the, the, the place where New Year's resolutions go to die. The book of Leviticus. But it's a gift, church. It was a gift to them and it's a gift to us. Now let me put something out here. Maybe a note of how to read Leviticus well. When we read Leviticus, when we read any book of the Bible, we want to both see the broad themes and elements that are playing out as well as the details. You have to read the book for both the big pictures as well as the details, the forest as well as the trees. Right, The broad themes we're going to look at here primarily on Sundays. And so today we're looking at Leviticus chapter 1. But next week we will skip all the way ahead to Leviticus chapter 8 because Leviticus 1, 2, 3, all the way through 7 are all dealing with the same broad theme of offering and sacrifice. Now we typically, when we read Leviticus, when we read Deuteronomy or Numbers, we get bogged down in the details. If you will, we miss the forest for the trees. The trees are important, but you're never going to understand the trees until you understand and see the beauty, the big picture of the forest. And so today, we're going to look at that big theme of sacrifice or offering. It's what the Lord tells Moses to speak to His people when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, this is what you shall do. So before we look at the this is what you shall do, the types, the times, the reasons, the details, let's ask the question, God, why offerings? Why sacrifices? What do these offerings communicate to us? And we see this in chapter 1, but we also see this in every other offering three enduring truths we're going to look at this morning as we look at chapter one and all of the offerings one god is holy and we are not god is holy and we are not truth two: the lord reconciles us through atonement The Lord reconciles us through atonement. And finally, truth three, blood is required for atonement. 
God is holy and we are not. The Lord reconciles us through atonement and blood is required for atonement. The Lord speaks to Moses and He says this in verse 3, If His offering is a burnt offering from the herd, He shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting and that He may be accepted before the Lord. Again, he says, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. Why? He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that it, that he may be accepted before the Lord. The, the first offering that we are introduced to it takes place for one primary reason, an order that the one bringing the sacrifice would be accepted before the Lord. I, I need to tell you bad news before we get to good news, and here's the bad news. Our default position, our default position before the Lord is not accepted. It once was before the fall and sin, but our default position now before the Lord as humanity is that we are not accepted. Let me give you two pictures from Scripture to, to drive this home. After man and woman sin, after they hide from the Lord, after the Lord clothes them with the fig leaves, after the Lord pronounces the curse that comes because of their sin upon the land, upon the man, upon the woman. We're told in one of the, the saddest pictures in all of Scripture at the end of chapter 3 that the Lord drives man and woman out from the Garden of Eden. Right? Like, like a, an animal that doesn't want to go. They are driven. That's the word, the Hebrew word, the same that is used in agriculture and livestock. They are driven out of the Garden of Eden. They are driven out of the presence of God because in their sin, they can no longer dwell in His presence. The second picture came just a few chapters ago in the book of Exodus as the Lord leads the people of God to the edge of Mount Sinai. And then the, the cloud, His physical manifestation, what's called the Shekinah glory of God, His presence, it comes down to rest on the top of Mount Sinai. And the Lord tells Moses, ensure that they do not approach the edge of the mountain. They are incompatible with Me, and if they approach the mountain, they will be consumed. The default position of humanity before God is that they are incompatible, unaccepted. And this is a hard truth. But if I'm just being honest, I think it's a freeing truth as well. Quite honestly, because I think that everyone deep down knows this to be true. Right? Everyone feels like at their core, they desperately need to prove themselves. Everyone, every man, woman, it doesn't take a child long. Once they're born, to start doing things, not necessarily because they enjoy it, but because in doing them, they believe they will get affirmation and praise. We all seemingly come out of the womb with an innate desire to make ourselves better, to prove ourselves, to prove that we are accepted, that we're not rejected. And you know what Scripture says? It makes sense that you feel that way. Because we were created to be accepted by our Creator God, and yet because of sin we are not. In our sin, we don't belong. But we were created to, and even now, we deeply long to be accepted. So why aren't we accepted before God? And it's simple. It's the truth that God is holy, and we are not. What does holy mean? What does it mean that God is holy? Does it simply mean that He's better than us? 
a little bit better than us, a little stronger than us, a little more consistent or faithful or truthful than us, the word holy actually means other. When we say that God is holy, it means that God is other. To be holy means to be distinct, to be set apart. Another word that's used in Scripture is to be sacred, to be uncommon, to be unique. Oftentimes in the church, we say that things are holy or are made sacred by setting them apart. Right, we're going to take communion at the end of the sermon, and I'm going to give you a plastic cup that I got from Amazon, just to be truthful, with grape juice that oftentimes tastes like cough syrup and a little wafer. And I am going to truthfully tell you that this is one of the most sacred things you will do all week with stale grape juice and bread that dissolves. Why? It's because in setting it apart, in partaking of it in a particular manner, we make it uncommon. We set it aside to be sacred. But God is not made holy the way that everything else is made holy. God is inherently holy. He is inherently other. He is inherently unique. He is inherently sacred. How? Well, the Old Testament particularly tells us that God is holy in two ways. In His power and in His goodness. God's power is uniquely displayed in many scenes throughout the Old Testament. The cloud that comes down on Mount Sinai, where the people feel the, gray, the ground shake, the earth quake, they see lightning and they hear thunder. It's displayed in the Lord manifesting His presence as a tornado of cloud and fire. But perhaps it's best seen in the beginning, where we read that God was when nothing else was. Genesis chapter 1 says God is in the beginning. He is self-existent. He is eternal. He needs nothing else. And yet this eternal self-existent God then displays His power all the more by creating through simply speaking. I can't get my children to respond to me with my words, but the Lord sets planets in motion. The Lord creates galaxies by words. God Himself holds all things together. He rules and reigns over the cosmos and every speck of dust that floats through the air. God is holy in His power. But He's also holy in His goodness. Again, seen all throughout Scripture in the way that He relates to His fallen creation through His mercy and kindness and love. But look again back to creation. Look at the way that the Lord's creation reflects who He is. Everything that He creates has life. Everything that comes from Him has flourishing. Where He creates, there is completeness. There is peace. There is order. Our God is holy in His goodness. God is holy, but conversely, we are unholy. Scripture and our own lives testify to this. We are unholy first and foremost because of death. Death, the result of sin, makes us unholy. Because God in His holiness, God who is the definition of holiness, is life, eternal, never-ending. Numbers says that blood, and you'll see this in Leviticus, continuously makes us unholy. It makes the ground that it falls on unholy because we weren't meant to taste death. God is holy in life and therefore death stains us as unholy. 
but we are also unholy because we reject our position as image bearers. We were created in the image of the holy God. And yet we reject being His so that we can be our own. We reject reflecting His holiness so that we can live a life of our own commonness. And we are unholy because of our pursuit of sin. God is good, and yet in our sin, we choose what is not good. We choose what is less than. We choose what is perverted. We choose what is broken. We choose what brings harm and strife and struggle and not peace and wholeness and order. Second Timothy says men are lovers of their own selves. They're covetous, they're boasters, they're proud, they're blasphemers. They are disobedient to their parents' children. They are unthankful and therefore they are unholy. God is holy and we are not. Church, it's important that we see ourselves rightly. It's important that we know that God is holy and perfect it is important that we see that we are not. We don't stumble into unholiness. No one is accidentally unholy. We pursue, we live lives set up chasing unholiness when we pursue lives apart from the Lord. In our unholiness, and in our incompatibility, the Lord speaks to Moses and He invites man and woman to bring an offering, a sacrifice, so that they might finally be in His presence accepted. Specifically, He says that we are to bring a burnt offering. It's often referred to as the whole burnt offering. This is one of several sacrifices. The, the Hebrew word that we translate as burnt actually means ascending. It, it describes when the offering is, is fully consumed by fire and the smoke rises to the Lord. At that time, the Lord says, for some reason, this sacrifice will make us accepted. All sacrifices state that God is holy and we are not so now let's look at the answer how this offering, how a sacrifice can reconcile an unholy people to their holy God. Verse 4, the Lord says when he brings the sacrifice that he may be accepted before the Lord, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. The second truth, God reconciles us through atonement. Because God is holy and we are not, we are in need of what Scripture calls atonement. The, the Hebrew word underneath of atonement that we translate atonement has two main concepts. One being ransom, to be freed from something. And the second, the concept of purifying, to be cleansed of something. Our unholiness has placed us in bondage to something and it has stained us with something. The bondage is the bondage of sin and the rightful judgment that we are owed because of it. We sit under the bondage and the judgment of sin. The Lord told Adam and Eve, on the day that you sin, on the day that you eat of this tree that I tell you not to, you shall surely what? fantastic. Do we need to go back to the beginning of Genesis? We'll be here a long time. You shall surely die. Now what happens to Adam and Eve when they eat of the tree? Do they immediately drop dead? No. Yet the Lord is a Lord who is faithful and true. 
We sit condemned under that promise that because of sin, we shall surely die. Atonement frees us from that judgment. Atonement frees us from that judgment of sin and death. But it also purifies us. Atonement cleanses us from the stain of sin. If we are image bearers of God, we were built to be mirrors that reflected God perfectly. But at this point in time, we're more like funhouse mirrors. We distort the image of God. We shrink the image of God. We mar the image of God that we are meant to reflect and atonement is meant to cleanse us of that. To restore us to how we are meant to be. And atonement we read in Leviticus comes through substitution. Look back again at verse 4. It says this, He, that's the person that brings the offering, shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted. The one who presented the offering would bring the, the bull or the goat into the courtyard of the tabernacle. And then, before the presence of God in the tent of meeting, before the priests that had gathered there, he would look at the animal and he would take his hand and he would lay his hand upon the animal to signify that this animal now identified with his uncleanness, his bondage, his rightful judgment. The, the gesture itself wasn't a magical way of transferring sin out of a person and into the animal. But it was a powerful symbol that this animal that had never rebelled against his Creator was about to switch places with humanity that had continuously rebelled against his Creator. The animal who was not sinful would take the place of the man who indeed was. Rather than us being consumed, the animal would be consumed. Put yourself for a second in, in that place. I know that this is a, a difficult book. It's, it's thousands of years ago in a context that are hard for us to understand, but here you are in the midst of a dry and arid land, and you see amongst your camp this, this big walled-off tent, and you approach it, and you know that inside of this gate is, is, a, is a smaller tent, and in that tent dwells the presence of the holy God that you have seen as a pillar of cloud, of a tornado of fire that has split a sea wide open, that has killed off the firstborn of every Egyptian family, that you have seen manifested in a thunderstorm that makes the earth tremble, you approach. And as your knees begin to tremble, as you get closer and closer and closer, as you recognize your unholiness, your own unfitness to be in the presence of God, you look down at the animal that you have brought. An animal that has done nothing but simply live life as an animal as it ought to since the day of its birth. And you look down at it and you place your hand on it knowing that it is about to be consumed for you. Atonement is made through substitution. Our sin, our guiltiness, our unacceptance is transferred to another and they are consumed for us. But the passage goes on, down in verse 10 and verse 14, in a very similar fashion to describe a, 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 a very similar burnt offering but with two other animals. One, rather than a bull, but a goat. And then finally, rather than a goat, turtle doves. And here's what's going on here. 
The Lord is ensuring that atonement, atonement by substitution, is available for everyone. A bull would have been a rare commodity only for the most powerful and wealthy of patriarchs within the people of Israel. And yet all people were unaccepted and all people needed atonement in order to become right before the Lord. And so the Lord says, if you can't come to me with a bull, then come to me with a goat or a sheep. And if you can't come to me with a goat or a sheep, then go and catch a turtle dove or a young pigeon and bring it to me. The Lord invites graciously atonement for all. Atonement was available for all, but atonement was still costly for all. The Lord is holy and we are not. We are reconciled through atonement. And then finally, blood is required for atonement. Read on in verse 5. It says this, Then, this is after the placing on of the hands, Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering, cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron's, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces of the animal, the head, the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails, its organs, its intestines, and its legs, they would be washed with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. One of the things that you're going to see throughout Leviticus, and one of the reasons we struggle with it, is because it's messy. Right? It, throughout Leviticus, your, your stomach will churn, your sensibilities will be challenged, a desire to not have to look, to see, to hear the way that the Lord speaks of His people. It's difficult. The sights and sounds and smells of the tabernacle would have been awful. The verses here give us insight to the scene of just one offering. The animal is killed inside of the walls, and then its blood is thrown, literally splashed upon the altar, which was a a raised earthen structure with kind of horns built up on the side, maybe four foot by four foot around that the animal would be laid upon. The blood would be drained out and it would be thrown, splashed on the side. Then, after it is laid there, it would be butchered, cut up into pieces, and the whole animal, all of its pieces, would be set upon the altar. But the entrails, the organs, the innards, would be taken out along with the legs and they would be rinsed in order that no unclean matter, none of the digested fecal matter, honestly, would be burnt on the altar. After it's washed, those would be placed and then it would be ignited and every last ounce of it would be burnt. The sacred space would be a place that would be covered in death. It would not be a pretty place. And this didn't just happen once. We actually find out later that though the burnt offering was originally for individuals to bring before the Lord, Israel recognized just how unholy they were and they instituted it for the entire camp twice a day. Plus others would bring it. Every morning, this would occur. Every evening, this would occur. The burning, the sounds of animals being slaughtered would be constant. So why in the sacred space so much death? And it's because atonement, substitutionary atonement, requires nothing less than death. Remember what the Lord said of Adam and Eve. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. When the Lord removes Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, He places a cherubim 
with a flaming sword on the outside to symbolize that if anyone wants to try and come back into the presence of the Lord, what will happen to them? They will surely die. So here's the truth. We cannot atone for ourselves and live. You don't want to know why we say stop trying to live a better life? It won't happen. You cannot atone for yourself and live. It's why the sacrifices, the offerings that the Lord institutes is such a gracious gift from the Lord. But here's the problem. It had to occur again and again and again and again because the lesser cannot atone for the greater. If humanity is the pinnacle of creation, how could a goat or a bull, even the best or highest or most rare of those that were not created in the image of God, how could they ever atone for humanity? The lesser cannot atone for the greater. And so what do we need? We need one who is greater than us to atone for us. This sacrifice, these sacrifices that the Lord gives is the down payment of a promise that one day a better sacrifice would come. That a final burnt offering would one day be offered. And it wouldn't come from an animal that belonged to God's people. It would come from the King of God's people. Isaiah 53 says this of that forever king that would one day come, the suffering servant as it's known. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, the king. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Why? When his soul makes an offering for guilt, a sacrifice for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall finally prosper in his hand. The Lord promises that one day the burnt offerings would come to an end. That the King of Israel, the forever eternal King, the better Israel would one day give Himself. And in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist, as he's down at the Jordan River, sees Jesus. And it says this, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John understood that every sacrifice, every animal, every drop of blood, every burnt offering ever prepared, ever offered in the tabernacle and in the temple was all leading up to this man, to Christ, to Jesus to the Savior, to the King that we had waited for, that He would one day become the final offering, the final sacrifice, the final atonement. That humanity didn't realize that one day when they laid hands on Jesus to drag Him to a cross, that they were giving to Him their guilt and that He would be sacrificed on our behalf. That He gave His entire life as a whole offering to the Lord and that when He said, it is finished, it meant just like here, that finally in that moment we were forever accepted. This, in Leviticus, is the Lord already leaning in to us, saying, it's going to come. I won't forsake you. I will not leave you. I will make a way. My oldest nephew, 
Max was adopted from Thailand when he was two. And uh, it, was, it was a several-year-long process from when uh, Angie and Stephen were matched to Max and first received a picture, and we just started praying over Max and celebrating Max. And about a year and a half into it, they got a, a, another phone call that said, hey, listen, I'm sorry, there's been a mixed-up. He was actually matched to two families. We're going to give him to the other family. And so Angie and Stephen started praying, and we prayed with them and just said, God, this is devastating. We want your will to be done. We want him to be where you want him to be with a family that knows you, loves you. God, make it so. And he was eventually matched again with Angie and Stephen. And then the day came where things were about to be official, and they took like a 72-hour airplane ride over to Thailand with a number of stops and a number of layovers and they waited there for a few weeks that the government required to finally adopt him and then they brought him home and it was the culmination of years of an ordeal where they paid any price where they endured any hardship just to get him with them so that they could love him forever And church, that journey pales in comparison to the journey that the Lord has taken to come and get us. To come and adopt us. To come and ransom us. To come and atone. To bring us back to Him. Let me end with this. Ephesians chapter 1, it says this. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, Christ Jesus, we have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of all of our trespasses and sins according to the riches of His grace which He has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time in order to unite all things to Him, things in heaven, and you and me on earth earth. Church, this book, Leviticus, it's the story of our adoption. It's the story of the Lord coming for us. And so today, there's no takeaways. There's no go and do's. There's no consider and put into action. This is simply an opportunity for us to marvel. To worship to know our God that loves us that much. Pray with me, church.